Welcome to this week's Rashi Shir, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. Okay, we resume our study of Rashi, and we are in Perak Tet Vav of Bereshit Pasuk Yud Aleph. And the story so far is Hashem is responding to Abraham's request for uh, knowledge and, and maybe certainty about his children and their uh, inheritance of Eretz Israel. And Hashem tells him to bring various animals. And he brings animals and birds and cuts up the animals, but does not cut up the birds. And Rashi has explained that there's at least three aspects of symbolism in this process. First of all, the animals and the birds represent korbanot, sacrifices, with which the Jewish people will earn the merit not only to inherit the land, but to stay in the land. Secondly, the um, animals represent the non-Jewish nations because non-Jewish nations are compared in various psukim to animals. And that is why they are cut up to show that they finally will be swept away. And the birds refer to the Jewish people who are also uh, represented in various psukim as birds and they are not cut up. And that is why, and that shows that they will not be uh, swept away. And the third aspect, which Rashi mentioned, why Abraham is told to cut the animals is because that is the way of people who make a covenant. They, two parties who want to make a covenant, they take an animal, they cut it up, and they walk between the two pieces. Either to say that um, if we don't keep the terms of the covenant, we'll be cut up, or in a more positive way, if we do keep the terms of the covenant, we will be as one, just like the two pieces came from one originally. So Rashi himself, moves between these three different interpretations of the act of bringing the animals and then cutting up. And now in Pasuk Yud Aleph, we um, talk about another uh, symbolism of the animals, but referring to the animals, i.e. the cut ones being representing the non-Jewish nations and the birds representing the Jewish nation. So the Pasuk says in Yud Aleph, uh, as part of the vision, presumably, maybe it's taken literally or maybe it's a vision, so Rashi tells us that ayit means a bird. So the bird descended on the pagarim, which means the carcasses. Yeshev Otam Avram. Well, I'll leave that for a while. There's a lot to say before we even get past the first four words. So first thing Rashi is going to do is explain what an ayit is. As I already told you, Rashi says, It is a bird. Al Shem Shahu Et because it flies, the sho'ef, and um, desires el-hanavalot, the carcasses, the carrion, latush alai ochel, to feed on me food, which is a um, quote from uh, Eov, kamo uh, v'ta'at el-hashalal, and that's a passage from Shmuel Aleph, it flew to the spoils. So Rashi is telling us that the word ayit means a bird, but it's a bird of prey, a bird of prey that likes to eat up dead animals. Now, um, I was going to say that this is one of those simple Rashi's where he's just defining what the word means because otherwise we wouldn't know. He is doing that, but the fact that the, he translates it as a bird that likes to eat carrion is significant as we will see. I think I'm gonna go out of order. Um, 
Well, I'll do the next Rashi, but then I'll miss out the next bit just to take a continuity to get to the end of the verse. And then I'll come back to the middle bit. So the next words Rashi says is Alhabagarim, which means on the carcasses. And Rashi says Alhabatarim, the cut up pieces. In other words, um, it's important for Rashi that the bird is descending not on the uh, dead birds, but on the dead animals, even though this bird, which we've established as a bird of prey and likes to eat dead things, and the birds are also dead, but they are not cut up. And therefore, Rashi distinguishes and says, when it says pagarim, it doesn't mean the carcasses that are uncut. Rashi says it means batarim, the carcasses that are cut. And he says this in order to set us up for what's coming next. Now, when I say what's coming next, and I said I'm going to jump over a bit, there's another bit which in some Chumashim appears in brackets, and some Chumashim doesn't appear at all. And it's Rashi taking issue with a particular word in the Targum. And we'll put that on one side, and we'll come back to it, because the last words of the Pasuk are, Vayeshev Otam Avram. So Avraham, Vayeshev Otam. What does Vayeshev mean? So we would naturally assume, I have to say, it's something to do with Shev, to sit, because that's what Vayeshev usually means. But Rashi says that's not what it means. Lashon Neshiva, the Hafracha, it's an expression of blowing away and Havracha, causing to flee. Kamo Yeshev Rucho, as in he causes the wind to blow. And the phrase Mashiv Haruach, Umorit Hagashem, is well known. Mashiv Haruach means Hashem makes the wind blow. So Vayeshev is he blew. So Vayeshev Otam Avram, Avram blew them away. Now the problem is a bit of a problem with the plural, why it's Otam and not Oto, because it's referring to the bird. So now we've translated the words. Let's just go back and see on the very simple meaning what's happening. What's happening is the bird, as in the bird of prey, descended al-habagarim on the carcasses, which Rashi says is the cut-up one, i.e. the animals, i.e. those representing the non-Jewish nations. And Avram blew away and chased away the bird from this act of descending, i.e. to eat, to feast on the cut-up animals. Why did Avram chase away the bird too, which was coming down to feast on the animals? Says Rashi, Remes, Sheyavo David ben Yishai, Lekalotam. This is an allusion to the fact that David ben Yishai will come to finish them off, to finish off the non Jewish nations. And he will not be allowed to do so from heaven until the Mashiach comes. So, this suddenly is a part of the grand vision that Abraham is having of Jewish history. The main focus is the enslavement and the exile of the people explicitly in Egypt, and as we will see implicitly in the other exiles. But along with that, we have this curious incident of the bird of prey coming down and Abram chasing it away. What does that mean? What does that tell us about this vision of the future of the Jewish people? So Rashi explains that the bird of prey is a good bird, 
it's coming to end up the animals, i.e. to make an end of the non-Jewish nations. That is why Rashi was keen to say, al-hapagarim, on the carcasses, Rashi immediately translated or, or interpreted as al-habatarim, the cut up pieces, i.e. the animals, i.e. the non-Jewish nations. Because if the bird of prey had been coming for all the dead animals and the dead birds, it wouldn't have made any sense what comes next. So now Rashi has said the bird of prey came down on the cut up pieces, i.e. the non-Jewish nations. Then Rashi is able to interpret Vayeshev Otam Avram as Avram is stopping the destruction of the non-Jewish nations until the time is right, if you like, at the end of history with the coming of Mashiach. Why is it Otam? Why is it Rashi, sorry, Abraham chased them away when it's only one bird? So may, and it's only one incident in history when David ben Yishai, I don't know why it's David ben Yishai, not Melech David. I'll leave that one for further investigation. But why David ben Yishai is the only one who is coming to end the nations and he is not allowed to. So one answer is it's referring to David and all his successors who tried the same thing. And in particular, there was a king from the house of David called Chizkiyahu, who was towards the end of the time of the Tanakh, who wanted to um, end, make an end of the kingdom of Assyria. Um, he didn't. Um, and Chazal say he could have been Mashiach, but wasn't quite. So he is another one in the same style with the same strategy as David, who was not allowed to fulfill the mission that he wanted to do. And maybe that's why it's Vayeshev Otam Avram. Okay, so that explains what's going on in this extremely mysterious little pasuk. Now, what's this bit that Rashi said? I, I jumped over because I wanted to get to the end. Now let's go back. Now, some of you might have it in brackets. After where it says, where Rashi says, Al-Bagarim, meaning Al-Habatarim, then we have a bit in brackets. If you don't have it, well, please just listen. If you do, it's, it's in brackets because it might not be original Rashi. Um, it's not in all age, uh, early editions, why right? it's in some in brackets and some not at all. Now, what is Rashi doing in this section, which we're going to go through? He is commenting on a word in the Targum. And it seems to me there's two reasons why Rashi sometimes comments on words in the Targum. And I think you can look at it in two ways. Either you can say that Rashi is explaining the Chumash, obviously, but Rashi is, uh, gives great reverence and authority to the Targum. Rashi assumes that you are reading the Targum with the Chumash before you get to Rashi's commentary. So occasionally Rashi will tell you what the Targum has to say and will explain what the Targum has to say because you, Rashi's reader, is also reading the Targum and wants to understand it. I think that's part of the story, but I think one can go a bit further and say that Rashi understands the Targum as a source of helping us, the reader, understand the Chumash. Um, he takes it as a given that we've read the Targum. And if he comments, he, sometimes he needs to comment on the Targum because we, the reader of the Targum, won't fully understand it or won't fully appreciate what the Targum is doing. And therefore we won't achieve Rashi's objective of understanding the Chumash. So Rashi sometimes will help us with the Targum I would suggest because that's how Rashi wants us to get the fullest understanding of the Chumash. Now, in this case, he's going to say that there's a word in the Targum which is the wrong word. 
Um, and to get more confusing, sometimes in the original version of the Targum, it's, we can see that Rashi is referring to the Targum where there's the, quote, wrong word. Sometimes versions of the Targum have, as it were, been corrected, which makes it even more confusing to see what Rashi's talking about. Okay, and what Rashi has to say um, is also rather strange. I think, I, I think it would be helpful if I tell you in advance what Rashi's going to say about the Targum. Because Rashi has said that the word pagarim, which means carcasses, is in this case referring to the batarim, the cut-up pieces. Not that they are the same word. When Rashi said on the word, in the Hebrew word pagarim, Rashi commented as batarim. He didn't mean that that's the translation, that batarim is the translation of pagarim, but rather in this particular case, when the Chumash says pagarim, it's referring to those carcasses, pagarim, which were cut up, Rashi says batarim. What's going, what Rashi feels is a mistaken in the Targum is the Targum translates the word pagarim with the word for cut-up pieces. In other words, where Rashi says batarim is the interpretation of pagarim, Onkelos, it seems, has batarim, or rather the Aramaic word for batarim, as the very translation of pagarim. And Rashi says it's not a translation of Pagarim, it's an interpretation. But it shouldn't be the translation. Let's go on. I hope, it's, I hope I'm making it less confusing rather than more so. So Rashi says, in, in brackets, so it may not be original Rashi, <coughs> the word Hapagarim in Hebrew, which it means carcasses, metargiminon Pagalim, sorry, Pagalia is correctly translated as pagalia, pei gimel lamet. So that's the correct translation of pagarim. They both mean carcasses. Ela, but mitoch shahurgalu letargem ish bitro, but because the, the targum is accustomed to translating the phrase ish bitro, each person by its side, when um, in Pasuk Yud, when it said, um, Hashem told Mo, uh, Abraham to cut up the animals and put each piece by its corresponding side, and it translated it there as, Vayhev palagaya, pei lamad gimel, not pei gimel lamad. So the correct translation of pagarim is pei gimel lamad. But the translation of batar, cut up piece, is Pei Lamad Gimel. Now, Pei Lamad Gimel, by the way, is, is the root of the Hebrew word mifleget, to a political party, because a political party is cut away from the rest of political parties. And Haflaga is a um, cutting, a division. Anyway, so since the Targum has correctly translated Batar as Palgalia, therefore, here comes the mistake. Nitchalef lahem tebat Pagalia, Le Palagya, the editors of the Targum, mistaken the root Pei Gimel Lamut, which means cut up piece, for Pei Lamut, sorry, sorry, I'm, no, I've got it wrong. Pei Gimel Lamut, which means carcass, for Pei Lamut Gimel, which means cut up piece. The Targumo, and they made this mistake in the Targum, and they translated to Hapagarim as Palagya, Pei Lamut Gimel, which is the Aramaic for cut up pieces not the Aramaic for carcasses. 
ba'al hamatargum kein toa. Sorry, ba'chol hamatargum kein toer. And anyone who translates um, pagarim carcasses as pei lamad gimel has made a mistake. Lepisha ein lahakish batarim lepagarim, because you can't say batarim cut up pieces is the translation of pagarim carcasses. It's not the translation. As I said, Rashi says it's the interpretation in this particular context, but it's not the translation. Shabatarim targamo palagia, because the correct translation of cut up pieces in the targum is palagaya, pei lamud gimel, upagarim, but the word in Hebrew carcasses, targamo pei lamud gimel. I'm sorry. That's a mistake in my book. It should be pei gimel lamud. Loshen pigol. It should be an expression of pigol. Pei gimel lamud. That's the word for Hebrew, for, for Aramaic, for carcasses. Kamo pigol hu. Like something is pigol. Now pigol is the name given to, um, uh, it's a very uh, particular halachic term of a sacrifice that was offered with the intention that it should be eaten after the specific time. And that is called pigol. Loshan, um, oh, then it says Loshan Pagar. Let's leave that out for a moment. And Pigol is something that is repulsive. That's really what the root of the word Pigol means. And that's why Pei Gimel Lamad is the appropriate translation of carcasses. Okay, I don't want to labor the point because it's really, it's a little bit technical and I don't think it's serving any purpose for Rashi other than helping you through a confusion in the Targum. But to simply uh, sum up, as I said at the beginning, that Rashi's pointing out that the Targum in our, our text of the Targum has translated Pagarim carcasses with the word um, Pei Lamad Gimel, which actually means cut up pieces, and it should have been Pei Gimel Lamad, and that's the word for carcasses. Even though Rashi himself said that carcasses is in this context the same as the cut up pieces, not that they're the same word. Okay, I think at this point I say, if you followed me, that's good. If you didn't follow me, we'll move on anyway. So we've finished that pasuk, and now we're on to Yud Bet. Yes, before you speak, Veggie, um, anybody else is welcome to unmute themselves and make a contribution at any stage. Yes, Veggie. Is there a reason why the pasuk doesn't just say, Vayered ha'ayit al habatarim, and like on the paces, that would make a whole lot easier than saying Allah Pagarim. Like Rashi obviously says Pagarim means Batarim, but is there a reason why the Pasuk doesn't just mention Batarim in the first place? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I would say two things. Number one, in a, in a sense, you can always ask that question, when, which doesn't devalue the question, but sort of obviates it. When Rashi says, you know, uh, the word here, uh, the word X is better understood as the word Y, you can always say, well, why didn't it say the word Y in the first place? That's what I mean. You can always ask that question. Once Rashi's explained, the Pasuk should be read as meaning this. Why didn't the Pasuk just say that? And maybe you can say that you know, we have a mitzvah, la asok with the great Torah, to occupy ourselves, to grapple, to wrestle with words of Torah. It's uh, part of the effort of learning Torah is the decoding. That's why it's written in, in some sort of uh, form that we have to work hard to understand. Um, the next thing I would say is... Um, Okay, no, the other thing I was going to say is maybe, just maybe, I would answer your question by saying there is a repulsiveness about the Pagarim. There's, and that's deliberate. Uh, and Rashi perhaps alludes to that when he says the translation of, of the Aramaic, what we just went through, the Aramaic translation of um, 
uh, carcass is equivalent to pigle, which means something meals, something disgusting, something um, we, we don't want to get involved with. And I think given that he's identifying here the bird coming down on the carcasses of the non-Jewish nations, which deserve to be wiped out and one day will, in a sense, their reign of power will come to an end. Um, I think uh, perhaps my answer to your question and perhaps Rashi's answer to your question is the Torah is deliberately describing them in a particularly negative fashion. Thank whereas you. the tar is more neutral. Mm. Makes sense. Okay. Thank you. Pasuk Yud Bet. Vayehi Hashemesh Lavo, which means the sun came to set, the sun was setting. The Tar Taima Nafla Al Avram, and a great uh, darkness, sorry, great sleep, sorry, deep sleep fell on Avram. Um, I just realized when I was preparing this that it's pretty much the same Lashon uh, when Adam Harishon was put to sleep and Chava was taken from him. We also had uh, not quite the same grammatical form, but Teidamar falling on Adam. And here Teidamar falls on Avram. I just point that out, this may be of interest. Vihine, and behold, Ema, there was fear, Chashecha Gedola, great darkness, Nafelet Olav, fall fell on him. So Rashi's got a short comment to tell us what this is Marames, what this is alluding to. And before I, we look at the Rashi, it's interesting that in the previous passage, <coughs> and in this passage, Rashi feels the need to tell us what the rem is, what the illusion is. And I think Rashi's question is um, both sort of what's going on, because it's all weird, and why do we need to be told it? So in the previous verse, what's this bird and what's this Abraham blowing them away? And in this passage, what's the deep darkness? It's clearly within the context of a vision, because the whole thing's a vision from beginning to end. And it's also clearly part of a message that Hashem is giving to Abraham about the future of his children. So we want to know what the message is, and we want to understand what are these uh, weird things going on. So I think that's what's driving Rashi to say, in this case, in Pasuk Yudbet, on the words, V'hinei Ema, Remez letzarot v'choshech shel galiot. It's an allusion to the troubles and the darkness of the exiles. So exiles in plural, incidentally. Now, very soon, in fact, in the next Pasuk, Hashem is going to explicitly talk about exile, but Rashi does say in a few places that it's not just the Egyptian exile singular, it's the other exiles that are going to come in the future. So Rashi is consistent here when he says Galiot, it's referring to exiles in general. And by way of introduction to Pasuk Yud Gimel, which is explicit about the exile in Egypt, um, so there's a general description of what Rashi says, it's Sarot and Choshech of trouble and darkness. And that, says Rashi, is what is uh, represented by the Hinei Eima HaSheicha, there's fear and there's darkness. Now, so we're set up for Pasuk Yud Gimel. And Pasuk Yud Gimel says as follows. Avram. Hashem said to Avraham, Yodawa teida, you will surely know. That your descendants will be strangers in a land which is not theirs. Va'avadum. 
So something will happen for 400 years. Just by the way, I think it's worth mentioning, this isn't a Rashi issue, but it's a simple translation of the Pasuk issue. The word avadum, the inu otam, is problematic. And I've always been slightly bothered by this. It doesn't mean they will serve them or they will be enslaved by them. Um, it turns out, according to the Radak and according to Ibn Ezra, it can mean both, which is why you see different translations. Um, if you say it means they will serve them, the avadum, as ve'avdu otam, the problem is when they will serve them means the Jews will serve the Egyptians. Ve'inu otam, they will afflict them, means the subjects switch round. The Egyptians will then afflict the Jews. So you could read it as that. The Jews will serve the Egyptians, the Egyptians will afflict the Jews. Or you could read it as they will be enslaved by them and they will be afflicted by them. Or, sorry, better still, they will enslave them and they will afflict them. The Egyptians will enslave the Jews, the Egyptians will afflict the Jews, in which case the, um, te- the subject and the object is preserved. Uh, and it's also relevant for when we get to the uh, next pasuk in Yudalad, where it says, Also the nation whom they will serve. Now, it's possible, but it's harder to translate that as the nation who enslaves them, because there's no them. There's no mem and there's no otam. So <clears throat> it, it, it's easier to translate as the nation whom they will serve, which means that the avadum in Yud Gimel should also mean they will serve them. The Jews will serve the Egyptians. But then you have to switch around the subject and object for the next word, next word, the inu otam. They will afflict them, must mean the Egyptians will afflict the Jews. Anyway, as I say, that's not really a Rashi issue. Rashi doesn't address it at all. But in terms of trying to understand what the Pasuk means, before we get to the Rashi, we have that problem. Now, um, Rashi says, and Rashi has quite a bit to say on understanding what exactly is being foretold here. And the problem is the 400 years. And I'll tell you now, we'll come across it very soon, but it's going to make sense if I tell you in advance. (coughs) Rashi proves that they could not have been in Egypt for 400 years. So take it from me, we'll see very soon. Rashi proves it, and he does. So given that they weren't in Egypt for 400 years, how do we understand the verse? Because children will be strangers in a land which is not theirs, and they will serve them and they will afflict them, see above, for 400 years. But the servitude and the affliction wasn't for 400 years. It was for less years, uh, fewer years. What does Rashi say? Starting from the beginning of Yud Gimel. From the birth of Yitzchak until the Jews left Egypt, that was 400 years. Wow. So the 400 years is not to do with the period in Egypt, which was less than 400 years, but it is to do from the birth of Yitzchak. Now we have to understand, and Rashi will explain, so I won't give it away, why the birth of Yitzchak commences this process. What happens at the birth of Yitzchak, why that is significant. And if it doesn't refer to the time in Egypt, how does it refer to the life of Yitzchak and the life of Yaakov before they went to Egypt. So Rashi will explain that. But first he's going to show to how he can verify the statement he just made. 
that there's 400 years from the birth of Yitzchak until the Exodus. How come? Because, Ketzad, how so? Yitzchak ben Shishim Shanim Kishonolad Yaakov. Yitzchak was 60 years old when Yaakov was born. We know that from the beginning of Toldot that says explicitly that Yitzchak was 60 years old when Yaakov was born. But Yaakov, Kishayered Mitzrayim, Amar, and Yaakov, when he went down to Egypt, he met Paro, and Paro said to him in a strange conversation, how old are you? And then uh, Paro, uh, Yaakov said, Yemei, Shanei, Mugurai, Shaloshim, Umeat, Shana. The days of the years of my sojournings are 130 years. So, from the birth of Yaakov to Yaakov going to Egypt is 130 years. From the birth of Yitzchak, which was 60 years before, Hare Mea Vetishim. We've got to 190 years. And they were in Egypt for 210 years. Now, how do we know that? We only know that by a gematria in a midrash. Kaminyan Radu, which is the gematria of Resh Dalad Vav. When Yaakov said to his children in the time of the famine, it's time to go to Egypt and get some corn and bring, us, bring back the corn so we can survive, he said, Radu, which means go down to Egypt and come back. And Rashi says there that Radu is the gematria of um, 210. So the 190 years from the time Yitzchak was born to Yaakov going to Egypt, plus the 210 years in Egypt makes 400. That 210 is a little problematic because it is a little bit circular. Rashi knows it's 400. And Rashi knows it's 190 years from the birth of Yitzchak until Yaakov's in Egypt. So it has to be 210 years in Egypt. And the gematria of Radu is really not a better source than the fact that it just has to be 210. But anyway, Rashi concludes by adding up these numbers, the 60, the 130, which are explicit in the Chumash, the 210, which is in the Midrash, to get to 400. So behold, this is the 400 years. So Rashi has number one, stated, but the 400 years referred to in the Pasuk start from the birth of Yitzchak. He has proved that from the birth of Yitzchak to the Exodus is 400 years. By the way, how is he reading the Pasuk? He's reading the Pasuk as saying the Arba Me'at Shana really should be read after your children will be in a land which is not theirs for 400 years and as part of those 400 years there will be servitude and there will be oppression but the 400 years doesn't go with because that didn't last for 400 years but it goes with now the next thing Rashi has to say is why can't it be that they were in Egypt for 400 years? And as I told you, Rashi proves it. And he says, the Imtomar, if you were to say, the Mitzrayim Hayu Arba Me'ot, they were in Egypt for 400 years. That can't be because Hare Kahat Miyorade Mitzrayim Haya. Kahat, who is the grandfather of Moshe, the son of Levi. He was one of those who went down to Egypt because it says that in Perak Memvav Pasuk Yodalov. And we know how old he was because in 
Sedra of Veira, we're given his uh, years, and it's 133. So Kahat went down to Egypt, and he lived for 133. So if you consider the years of Kahat in Egypt, which is 133, actually it's a maximum of 133, because presumably he went down not at zero years old, but at X years old, which means in Egypt, he was 133 minus X. But we're trying to show that even if you take the maximum number of years they were in Egypt, it's not 400. So we can say, even if he was in Egypt for all of 133 years, and you add the years of his son, Amram, and Amram was 137. So if you add 133 to 137, you get 270. Ushmonim Moshe. And the 80 years of Moshe, because that was his age when they went out of Egypt. So the grandfather was Kahat, the father was Amram, the son, the grandson was Moshe. If you had 133, the years of Kahat, 137, the years of Amram, 80, the years of Moshe, you get 350. If you add them up, you only find 350. And of course, it can't actually be a total of 350 because you have to subtract all the years that Kahat overlapped with Amram. Presumably, Amram was not born in the last year of Kahat's life. Presumably, Amram was born much earlier than that. So if you're adding all the years, you add Amran, really, you really add Kahat from the time he came to Egypt until he gave birth to Amran, or his, he, his wife gave birth to Amran. Then you add the hundred and the years of Amran until his son was Moshe, which will be less than 137. Then you add the 80 years of Moshe. Sorry, and Rashi continues, uh, you also got to subtract Shachai Amran Acha Leida Moshe. And you've also got to subtract the years that Amran lived after Moshe, in other words, after Moshe was born after when they were overlapping. So the very, very maximum you can get is 350. And in fact, you can't get anywhere near 350 because of these overlaps. It's clearly showing it must have been less than 400. And these genealogies and years of Kahat and Amram, they're explicit in the Chumash. There's no way around this. The years in Egypt must have been less than 400. So what were these years of Kiger Yehia Zarachah? Your children will be strangers, but Eretz lo lahem. So continues Rashi. The words, but Eretz lo lahem. Lo ne'emar be Eretz Mitzrayim, ela be Eretz lo lahem. Rashi's pointing out, and I've already labored this, so it won't come as a surprise. But the 400 years are not in the land of Mitzrayim. In fact, the word Mitzrayim doesn't appear in the Pasuk. I kept referring to Mitzrayim because we know that's what it means, at least partially, at least for 210 years. But Rashi points out, it doesn't say Mitzrayim. It doesn't say they will be in Mitzrayim for 400 years. It says they'll be, in a, they'll be ger, strangers, in a land which is not theirs. And Misha Nolad Yitzchak, from the time that Yitzchak was born, we find Vayagar Avraham. Avraham was sojourning, Vayagar, as a stranger. And if Avraham was living like that, then his family was living like that, including Yitzchak. Uba Yitzchak, it says, Gur Eretz Azot. 
Yitzchak was told, sojourn, live like a stranger in this land. So the point Rashi is making, that even when they were in what we call Israel, they were ger ve'eretz lo lahem. They were strangers in a land which was not theirs. And so, and we see this because the Pasuk says regarding the sojourning of Abraham in the land with Yitzchak. And Yitzchak, and continues Rashi, Yaakov gar ve'eretz ham. Yaakov, as it says in Tehillim, incidentally, not in the Chumash, um, although we do find Rash Yaakov and Gur in the Chumash, but Rashi quotes a Pasuk, which presumably is more straightforward from Tehillim, Yaakov gar ve'eretz ham, and lagur ba'aretz banu, the sons of Yaakov. When they come to Egypt, they say, we've come lagur ba'aretz. So Rashi is telling you, it's not the location, but it's the nature of the residence that is being prophesied here. And the nature of the residence will be that of a ger. And it doesn't matter whether they're gerim in Egypt or in Lavan's house, in the case of Yaakov, or even in Israel, in the case of Yitzchak. If it's a ger-type residence, then it fulfills the prophecy of ger yiyah zaracha ve'eretz lo lahem, that they will be strangers in a land which is not theirs. Um, right, that concludes the Rashi. One more point. Um, again, I have to share with you something that bothered me for years and years and years, and then I realized, and it was so obvious. What's the relevance of the birth of Yitzchak? Why doesn't it say, from now, Avraham was already a ger in the land, as Rashi has proved by quoting the Pasuk about Avraham being a ger. So why does the 400 years, why does the clock have to start from the birth of Yitzchak? And the answer is obvious. Maybe you've got it already. Took me a while to get it. Because the Pasuk says, Ki zaracha. Your descendants will be a ger, will be strangers. Now the, that can only come about when Abraham has got descendants. Obvious, isn't it? Um, as I say, mate, it was obvious to you all along, but it wasn't to me. It can only come about when Abraham has got descendants. And that will only start when his descendant, i.e. the one who's going to bear the legacy, the Jewish one, Yitzchak, is born. So even though at this point, before Yitzchak's born, Abraham was already living like a ger, but the prophecy doesn't refer to Abraham. It only refers to Abraham's children. So it can only start when Abraham has children. And it turns out from the moment he has a child, he and that child are living as a ger. And it works out, if we do the maths, the clock starts from the birth of Yitzchak, so the whole life of Yitzchak, the whole life of Yaakov, the whole life of Yaakov's descendants in Egypt, obviously, they were living as Gerim, as strangers, in a land which was not theirs. And that did not finish until the Exodus 400 years later. Just by the way, um, I'll mention now, we have a famous problem that there's another prophecy, uh, as another reference, um, when the Jews came out of Egypt, it says they'd, they'd been in Egypt for 430 years. Now, Rashi there in Shemot Perek Bet, sorry, I forget the passage, but it's towards the end of Perek Bet when the Jews come out of Egypt, and it says they were in there for 430 years, and it says in Egypt. Rashi has to say in Egypt and other lands, for reasons we now understand, because they weren't in Egypt for 430 years. They weren't even in Egypt for 400 years. But why 430? This time it's 400. Why over there in Shemot is it 430? So the answer is 
that the 430 started with the Brit Benabatarim. What's going on here? The, the date of the prophecy. The 400 years started with the birth of Yitzchak. Now, that means, Rashi doesn't address this directly, but it's, 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 it's more or less explicit in his words, and there's no way around it, that the Brit Benabatarim was 430 years before the Exodus, the birth of Yitzchak was 400 years before the Exodus, which means the Brit Benavitarim was 30 years before the birth of Yitzchak. Which means, but Yitzchak, when, how was old was Avraham at the, uh, the birth of Yitzchak? He was 100. Which means the Brit Benavitarim, what we're reading about now, was when he was 70. Why is that a problem? Because we learned earlier at the beginning of Pasha Lechlecha that he was 75 when he went to Israel. So the Brit Benavitarim is five years before he arrived in Israel. How can that be? So then you have to say that he went to Israel twice. He went to Israel uh, when he was 70 for what we would today call a pilot trip. He had the vision of the Brit Benavitarim. He went back to Haran. And when he was 75, Hashem told him to go to Israel and he did at the beginning of Pasha Lech Lecha. It's problematic, but it's not impossible to resolve it that way. And we basically have to. Anyway, that's, if we get to um, Parashat Bo, we'll remember this discussion. Now, let's move on to Pasuk Yudalad. Let me pause and ask if there's any questions. Okay, I'll carry on. No, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, I, I was interested that you noticed that um, you were saying that it's not about the location, but um, about the nature of the residents um, and that they were strangers. But it's interesting that it says like the Eretz Lolahem, like it seemed like you were defending that Israel was theirs. But okay. We stated it was like, yeah, Eretz Lolahem. Like, how can there be? I don't know if my question really makes sense. I don't know. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. But I think we, the answer is clear. Um, and Rashi, uh, when we talked about the argument between the shepherds of Lot and the shepherds of Abraham, and the shepherds of Lot, says Rashi, let their sheep graze in other people's fields. And their taina, their claim was, well, the land belongs to Abraham, and he's only got Lot as in his heritor. And therefore, and we're the shepherds of Lot, they're weak, weak and grace. And Rashi says there, because the Pasuk says there, the uh, Prizi, um, yeah, the, the Prizi, the, where, yeah. that's right, telling you that, and I think Rashi's words were, they had not, uh, Abraham had not inherited it yet. Uh, and Avram had not yet acquired it. That is Yud Gimel Zion. And I think the answer to your question is that absolutely it was promised to Avraham that it would be given to his descendants, but that had not come to pass yet. And the point of this Rashi, what we've just learned, is that even in the life of Yitzchak, who lived in Israel his whole life, he was living in a land that was not his. So it was promised that it would be the land of their descendants, but it hadn't happened yet. Interesting. So yeah, the descendants didn't mean Yitzchak. It meant after Egypt, kind of, when we finally get in after, you know, 40. That's what it meant. Wow. Interesting. Absolutely. And that, that's what Rashi says has to be the interpretation. Amazing. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, it is pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, I'll just mention that um, um, we know that Abraham had 10 tests, and we usually count the last and the greatest of the tests being the uh, Akeda being told to offer up his only son. Uh, there's a famous Rabbeinu Yonah in his commentary on the mission in Pirkei Avot that says, no, the 10th test was buying Maratamach Pela. 
which is hard to imagine after the test. Oh, I mean, how is that like number 10 if number nine was being asked to sacrifice your son? So I'm not saying he's definitely saying it's a greater test, but says Rabbein Yonah, Bain Marat was a very significant test because Avram had been told that his children would inherit the entire land. And yet for Avram to buy one little cave, he has to basically debase himself before Ephron and spend 400 shekels to get this cave, which is the only thing he buys in a land which he's told is going to be his. But that's the point. It wasn't his. And he had to work very hard even to buy a little piece of it because what was told was going to be given to his descendants was not given to him. And that fits in what I'm saying to you now. Thank you. Pasuk Yudalat continues the prophecy. The gum et hagoi asher ya'avodu dan anochi. And also the nation. Now again, you, as I said before, I'll just mention again, it's easy to translate it as whom they will serve, the nation whom they will serve, to be consistent um, between va'avodum and vi'inu and ya'avodu, you might want to translate it as the nation who will enslave them. Either way, it refers to the Egyptians. The nation whom they will serve, dan anochi, um, which will translate for the moment as I will judge, va'acharechein yitzu b'ruchush godol. And after that, they will go out with great ruchush acquisitions, property. The Rashi's got a few things to say. First of all, vagam et hagoi. Says Rashi, vagam lerabot arba malchiot. Vagam and also is to include the four kingdoms. Who are the four kingdoms? Pras, Madai, Yavan, and Edom. So um, at the end of Bayat Sheni, um, the uh, temple was destroyed and was passed into the Babylonians, which then passed it to the Persians. Um, it depends actually on different ways of counting the four nations. Is it Babel, Paras, Stroke, Madai, then Yavan, then Edom, or is Paras and Madai two separate ones? It's counted in different places, but there's Babylon, there's Persia, there's Greece, and there's Rome, and they are the four Malchiot, the four kingdoms which enslaved Israel. Not that necessarily exiled Israel, because the Greeks didn't. The Jews were living in Israel in the time of the Greek Empire. But they controlled Israel. And the Roman Empire is the one we're still in. We're no longer under the control of the Romans. But until Jerusalem and the temple is rebuilt back to its original glory, that exile is not yet over. We are fortunate. We are blessed to live in a time where we are seeing the end of that exile. But we haven't quite seen the end yet. So... There is the exile in Egypt. There is the exile of the four kingdoms. Um, it's interesting where you put in the Golas Ishmael when the Arabs take control of Israel, where that fits in into the, uh, this version of the chronology. Fascinating question, which we'll leave for the Maharal and others to deal with. But says Rashi, it's not just Egypt. And we learn that from the word the gum. The gum means and also, and it implies something additional. Um, it doesn't just mean additionally they will serve them for 400 years and additionally I will judge them because that would be, we could have managed entirely without the gum because chronologically after the 400 years is up, Hashem will judge the nation who enslaved them. We could have done all that without the word the gum. The gum is extra. So it says Rashi, it means something extra. 
on top of the Egyptians, I will judge other nations. Who are these other nations? Says Rashi, they're the four other kings that enslaved Israel. Uh, there is a sort of more midrashic uh, suggestion that the gum et ha are all superfluous. We could have just said goy. So when you say the gum et ha, you add four extra things referring to the four malchiot. So it says Rashi, the gum adds, the gum l'rabot arba malchiot, sha'af heim kalim al sheshivdu et Yisrael. They will also be finished because they enslaved Israel. The Babylonian empire is no more. The Persian empire is no more. The Greek empire is no more. The Roman Empire is no more, although its successors are still um, showing authority over us. So that's not finished. But the first three are finished, are gone. <coughs> and Rashi here implies a sort of cause and effect. Because they enslaved the Jewish people, they suffered the fate of being wiped out. So that's Rashi explaining why it says Vagam. And then Dan Anochi, Rashi says, Be'esamakot, I will judge with the 10 plagues. There's a few things to say. It's, it's suggested that Rashi has to say something because the Dan Anochi sounds like there'll be a court of law. The Dan means I would judge. I'll sit in judgment. There'll be a prosecutor. There'll be a defender. The Egyptians will be in the dock and there will be a judicial process. But we see no evidence of that in the story of the Exodus. All we see is Egypt getting smashed. So says Rashi, the done here does not mean I will judge. It means I will punish. And Rashi says, how is that the done effected? The esemakot, with the 10 plagues. That's how we see that the interpretation of the word vadan isn't I will judge, but rather I will punish. And the next thing Rashi says is on Baruchot. Oh, sorry, by the way, um, it, Rashi's previously, in the previous comment, Rashi said it's not just the Egyptians, it's the other nations also with the Egyptians being punished. Uh, did they get 10 plagues? Did the Persians get 10 plagues? Did the Greeks get 10 plagues? Probably not. And in which case you have to say that even though the gum etagoi means Egypt and the other kingships, kingdoms, Dan Anochi refers back to Egypt alone. And then Rashi says on the word Birchush Gadol, the Mamon Gadol, with great money, commotion emar, as it says, when the Jews left Egypt, we have the story, they have, we have the incident of the people going to their Egyptian neighbors and asking for gold and silver as payment for their slavery. And they went out and they, uh, the word, they emptied out Egypt. Rashi says there, they left Egypt empty, like when you empty out a, a bag of stuff and there's nothing left in the bag. Um, now, why does Rashi have to say this? Because rechush is normally translated as property. Property means that you've acquired it through a process of negotiation, clever deals, buying and selling, trade, basically. But that didn't happen in the case of the Jews leaving Egypt. They didn't buy and sell and make a profit and build up a stake and build up rechush. What they did was a one-off taking of the money that they were owed. So that's why Rashi translates Rechush Gadol as Mamon Gadol. It doesn't mean Rechush in the sense that we normally understand that. It means money. 
money they got, not through trade, but through taking what was theirs. Okay, next pasuk, Tet Vav. I think we've just got time for this one, uh, and then we'll conclude. Va'ata tovo el avotecha v'shalom. You will come to your fathers in peace. Tikaver v'seva tova. You will be buried at a good old age. So Rashi starts by saying, Va'ata tovo. Velo tire kol eila. You will not see all this. You, Avraham, will not see all this exile and slavery and punishment and rechush gadol. So the question is, why is this pasuk, which is uniquely about Avraham and his future, in the middle of this um, description of what's going to happen to the Jewish people in the long-term future? And Rashi has answered it with one with, with the word, and you will not see all this. In other words, Rashi is connecting to the wider context of what Hashem is talking about, the exile and the punishment and the redemption. So, sorry, what I'm trying to say is, without Rashi, we've got the story of the Jewish people being in exile, and then suddenly something about Abraham. But Rashi is showing that the reason it's mentioned about Abraham dying is to say to Abraham, but, well, Rashi doesn't use the word but, but he's implying the word but, you won't see this. This, what I've just described, will not be seen by you. Why won't it be seen by you? Because you will die and be buried before it happens. In other words, Rashi is understanding the vav at the beginning of va'atatavo as but. <coughs> it's not the vav <coughs> to make a conjunction, it's the vav to make a separation, to make a contrast. This will all be happening, but you won't see it. Why won't you see it? Because you will come to your fathers, which is a euphemism for you will pass away. <laughs> then Rashi says, Now, coming to your fathers is an idiomatic expression used throughout Tanakh, meaning dying. It means joining your fathers. Um, it can be a little bit more precise than that. If your father is in Shamayim, then you will join your father by going to Shemayim. And that leads to Rashi's problem. And Rashi says on the word, Aviv His father was an idolater. We know Terach was a professional idol seller. He made idols and he sold them. That was the famous Midrash. Avraham is left in charge of the shop and he smashes the idols. Rashi himself brings down this Midrash at the end of Parshat Nalach. So we can't get away from the fact that Terach was an idolater. In which case, for whom of Asro Shiavoe love? Question mark. And Hashem is giving him good news from Avaser that Avraham will go to where Terach is. That doesn't make sense. Terach is going to be in a bad place after he dies because he's an idolater. So how can it be good news? How can it be nice to tell Avraham he's going to go to the same place? This teaches us that Terach did Teshuva. So this is, Rashi's source is a Midrash Tanchuma in Shemot that said Terach did Teshuva. And we can see, the, by putting these pieces together, Avraham is being told good news because Hashem is being nice to Avraham. 
And Abraham is being told that Abraham is going to go after Abraham dies to where Terach is. Terach was an idolater. So Terach, if it's going to be good news for Abraham that Abraham's going to meet up with Terach, Terach must be in Shemaim. How did Terach get there? So we know from this that Terach did Teshuvah. But it still leads to two problems. Number one, at the very end of Pasha's Nach, Rashi gave a long comment on the fact that the Pasuk says that Terach died and then Avraham left. But in fact, Rashi proves that Avraham left long before Terach died. And Rashi described why that was. But Rashi also said it's legitimate to say Terach died because Rashayim Koreim Meitim Afilu Bachayehem. Wicked people, i.e., like Terach, are called dead even when they're alive. And there was no hint in that Rashi at the end of Perik Yudalov of Terach doing Teshuvah. Rashi yet here says Terach did Teshuvah. So it's not a huge problem, it's just an observation. Rashi says Terach did Teshuvah, but there's no clue in the Chumash that Terach did Teshuvah. So it's something that happened outside of the uh, gaze of the Chumash. Although it's worth pointing out a beautiful idea from Rav Soloveitchik. So Rav Soloveitchik says, before Abraham journeyed to Eretz Canaan, as we know, again, from the end of Pasha's Nach, Terach journeyed to Eretz Israel, Eretz Canaan. He didn't get there, but he set off to go to Eretz Canaan. Why did he want to go to Eretz Canaan? So the Ramban answers that to get away from Nimrod, and he wanted to get out of Nimrod's orbit, which is why he had to leave the whole Mesopotamian empire and go to Canaan. Rashi doesn't give any clues at all says Rav Soloveitchik, that Terach's desire to go to Eretz Canaan was the same desire as Abraham's. Terach knew that Canaan was the right place to be. Terach was, if you'll pardon the anachronism, a Zionist. That's why he wanted to go to Canaan, says Rav Soloveitchik. That was Terach's doing to Shuvah. We haven't finished Pasuk Tetvav, but I think that's a nice enough place to pause. So we will stop there. Next week, my voice will have recovered and we will continue, same time, same place, from where we've left off in the middle of Tetvav, Tetvav. Are there any comments or questions? Uh, Rabbi Zaron here, just a quick question. How is Rome still uh, ruling over us? Um, it's not, it's the successor to Rome. Rome gives over to the Catholic Church, which gives over to Europe, which I suppose gives over to America, but they're still ruling over us because we haven't reclaimed Eretz Israel in the way that we used to and the way that we will. And in particular, we haven't rebuilt the Bet Midrash and we haven't reestablished full unadulterated autonomy for the Jewish people. While we're still dependent on other nations, we're not fully uh, sovereign. So in particular, the Bet Midrash, th when that is built, that will be the end of the enslavement by the other nations. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Good night. Thank you, Rebecca. Bye. Thank you.